Okay, if you want to go with Corey, young people. <laughs> There's a tendency within human beings to get in their own way. Have you ever felt that at times? It could be anything, really, where we we're kind of tripping over ourselves at times, and our, we are our own worst enemy at times. Well, the same thing can be true in our understanding of some of the poignant stories that are in the Bible. Sometimes we can't get out of our own way. And what I mean by that is when we come to the Bible, we come to a collection of Eastern books with a Western mentality. And sometimes we can't understand the point, let alone the symbolism, of what is being said because we are a very linear, logical, A to B type of uh, group of people that are absorbed within a Western culture. But when you pick up books of the Bible, and when you read stories that are found especially in the life of Christ, there's more than history that is going on in these stories. Many times these stories are simply a setup for us to understand something deeper that is being communicated. So some books are more symbolic than other books. So you have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They all tell stories kind of the same way. But when you come to the Gospel of John, there's a different angle to it. And that's what I'm calling mysticism. Stepping into the mystic is stepping into those experiences uh, that sometimes elude us because we get in our own way of understanding what is in that particular story. So a couple weeks ago, when we started this particular series, we talked a little bit about mysticism, and I wrote up a definition that I'd like to remind you of. Mysticism is the mysterious moments, whether they're encounters, experiences, or events, that create memories, meaning, and movement that often transcend time. So being a chaplain at a funeral home, I do a lot of memorial services. And when I sit down with the family, it's these things that they remember. It's these type of things that they want to be said in memory of their loved one. It's not really so much what their particular vocation is. It's more about what their life means to the family and to other people that come to say goodbye. And so this mysticism is somehow trying to understand that God is present with us all the time, and he's moving in the course of time. And some of those things transcend time. I like the way this German theologian Karl Rahner says, a mystic, in the words of this German theologian Karl Rahner, is someone who has experienced something. Now that's pretty profound, isn't it? We experience things all the time. 
but not all things stay with us, right? It's amazing that life is too busy to remember everything, right? A lot of things come and go, and I can't even remember what I had for dinner the day before, let alone remembering all the complexities of the day's events. So when we come to the Gospel of John, what we're doing is we're taking a look at these stories with an eye toward what it symbolizes. And in the case of the stories we've looked at so far, we have said that each of us, including the characters that are in the stories, are on a voyage. And this voyage is toward the shore. And there are lights along the shoreline that compel them to come in and to experience life in greater fullness than what they know. John tells us at the end of his gospel, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you might have life in his name. In the middle of the gospel of John, he talks about life in abundance. Life that is experienced at a level that allows us to transcend the time that we have here on earth. So, what we're doing over the next few weeks is taking a look at some of these separate stories. And as we do so, one of the things that's going to jump out at us as we get deeper into the Gospel of John is how the story turns on conflict. The Gospel of John is turning from one thing to the next on conflict that is arising within an understanding, at least of the religious leadership of the day, on how life is, how life works, rather than how life can be. And Jesus keeps holding out something greater, and what we find is that this conflict that the storyline of Jesus turns on is the energy of this gospel. And it seems as though the religious leaders can't get out of their own way. Why? They have an attachment to the Jewish religious institution, and they can't let go of it. They are attached to a well-established religion that is their own interpretation of their scripture. And I think that's something that we all are prone to, our interpretation of life often prevents us from evolving and growing and our faith evolving as well. So because we all get in our own way at times, sometimes something has to happen that shakes us in a way that we can get out of our own way. So these Jewish authorities had become committed to their commitment to their interpretation of Scripture rather than being committed to God himself. Jesus comes bringing a new revelation, and he breaks into these moments, and here's how we have looked at it so far. We said there are seven signs that are given in the Gospel of John. We've looked at one of them, changing the water to wine, and the second one is the healing of the royal official's son. Now, when you connect the stories together that we've looked at so far, we see a focus on a particular individual. The first is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Jesus is at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. They run out of wine. Mary says, 
do whatever he tells you to do. And Jesus says, hey, fill these water vessels up, and they do so. And they are Jewish ritual cleansing vessels that he now changes into the best wine that the marriage uh, MC has ever tasted. The problem is that while that is great, Jesus in the same chapter goes right into the temple in Jerusalem and he overthrows the tables of the money changers in the temple. And that's where the first tension point comes in this ongoing conflict in the book. The next focus is much longer. It's on Nicodemus who comes to Jesus at night. And he says, I know you're from God because you're doing some great things. Uh, but he's trying to piece it all together, but he can't get out of his own way, right? Because he thinks only, God only works in this particular way. He's a dedicated Pharisee. And Nicodemus comes in the dark because he doesn't want to be found out. He doesn't want to be seen by some of his colleagues. He's a religious fundamentalist. And then it turns to the Samaritan woman, a woman that is often perceived as being a loose moral woman because she's had five husbands. And uh, here Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem, going back up to Galilee, and he stops along the way in an area called Samaria. And there he meets this woman, not at night, but at noon, in the heat of the day. And he asks her for a drink, and she's taken back because she's a Samaritan. She's half Jew, half Gentile. She's an individual that is despised and looked down upon by pure Jewish individuals. But here's Jesus ministering to her, and the disciples come back and see Jesus talking to her. And tension point number two is, how can Jesus be talking to a Samaritan woman? Okay, so... Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Jewish leader, the Samaritan woman. And now here, you have a Gentile. No Jewish blood at all. Not only is he a Gentile, he is a royal official. What we don't know is if he's in the Roman army. There are two other places in Matthew and in Mark that tell a very similar story that call this individual a centurion, one who's in charge of other soldiers. We don't know if this is the same story that's being referenced in Matthew and in Mark, but what we do know is here is this individual that is a Roman uh, soldier, or at least a Roman official, that represents the oppression of the Roman Empire upon the Jewish people. Now what we find taking place is that Jesus hears a request from this man because his son is dying. And this man is pleading for Jesus to come to his home and to touch his boy and to raise him up and give him health. And it seems as though Jesus gives, us, gives him the brush off. All you're looking for is signs and wonders. Go on. Go on. Your, your son will live. Doesn't that seem kind of like a brush off? Are there times in your life where you kind of feel maybe God has brushed you off? That he doesn't care 
But he says, on your way. Well, I think this story is going to teach us three things. We're going to understand a little bit about the geography of God. Where can you find God? And it all resides in this man who's unnamed. He's a Gentile. He's male. He is from Galilee up to the north. He holds a royal position. He has a dying son that needs healing. But when Jesus seems to brush him off, he takes Jesus at his word. It's a key thing to keep in mind, okay? So here's three things I want you to see in this story. The first one is overcoming tribalism. The second one is a new understanding of God. And a third one is a new understanding of faith. So let's talk about the first one, overcoming tribalism. You know what tribalism is, where a person adheres to a particular group and they see themselves 100% right 100% of the time. And they will fight tooth and nail to convince the other side that they are completely wrong. If you have not felt it already, you will as these months uh, proceed in an election year, there's going to be plenty of tribalism. Okay? You can, you can see it starting to take place. You have felt it from the last election, but it's going to heat up. Can't you wait for all those stupid commercials? Don't you just want to kind of go rip your hair out? Well, I don't have that much left. But anyways, what's left, I want to rip my hair out because, you know, I have seen enough Bernie Marino commercials, even in the last few months that I want to even acknowledge, you know? But tribalism is going to be first uh, and foremost in, in front of us this coming year. Well, the same thing is happening in that day and age. Jesus is going to be a barrier breaker. And one of the things that we are going to see is that he is going to overcome the natural tribalism that is found in all societies. So Jews hate Gentiles, Gentiles hate Jews, Jews hate Palestinians, Palestinians hate Jews, Republicans hate Democrats, Democrats hate Republicans, Browns hate Steelers, Steelers hate Browns. The list could go on and on and on. It can be a long racial lines. It can be along um, different cultures, different types of trends that are often found around the world at any given time. What this particular story begins at is a Jew and Gentile coming into a moment. Jesus is Jewish. Jesus is an individual that grew up with the Torah. Jesus is an individual that knew his religion very well. Why does tribalism work? Why is it that people are so bound at times to their tribe? Do you remember when the Indians had uh, a, a mantra that said, are you in the tribe? Do you remember that? That was a, kind of a, a phrase that's a number of years ago. Are you in the tribe? Um, what we find is that's kind of a question that's below the surface all the time in our lives. Are you in the, uh, in the tribe? Now, why do we do that? 
when we analyze it, tribalism is a survival technique. You know, we never ever really leave the subculture that has formed us. We don't. And the complexity of tangled up roots of who we are, how we were raised, and where we were raised is not easily undone. So when you don't have faith in other people, which is a part of tribalism as well, you will fear that they gain more power. While tribalism is an identifying characteristic of all human life, and it fuels all human rivalry, there's this very bad blood between Jew and Gentile. How could this man come and ask Jesus to heal his son? How could he do that? This is the Jewish Messiah, not the Roman Messiah. Go find someone else. Find another teacher, philosopher, or healer within your own culture. Get away. But this man is desperate, right? He's desperate. His son is dying, and all of you who are parents here know that you will do anything for your kids. You will do anything to see that they heal, that they're happy, that they are functional and productive, and their better days are ahead of them. This guy, he has a son. We don't know how old he is. We're not told in the story. But he is dying. But there has to be this overcoming of tribalism. Why? Because tribal thinking always defines the characteristic of our own tribe as normal. And everybody else is abnormal. You Watch this this year. We're the normal ones. You're the abnormal ones. Right? And it occurs all the time all around the world. And when we don't speak the same language as someone else or they have different cultural, um, uh, you know, complexities that we don't understand, we go, oh, that's crazy. Right? It seems as though we can appreciate the differences of culture more today than, um, than before because there's a lot of shows now that are being more integrated of different cultures. If you watch on Netflix, a lot of the movies now are being made in other cultures and uh, the English is dubbed over the original and stuff. And so you're beginning to see how different people approach life and so forth. And this man here, comes to Jesus, and what he does is not normal. Usually he would just bark out an order to those Jews because the Jews are subversive to him. You just do what I say. But here he comes in humility and he is pleading for Jesus to intervene. And then Jesus does this very strange thing. He says, uh, you know what? Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Man's persistent, though, and he begged him. He begs him. And then Jesus says, go, your son will live. This man has a choice to make, doesn't he? 
Am I going to trust His Word? Or am I going to go away disappointed? Why didn't I vet Jesus better? Right? He's outside the norms of the Roman subculture. But he doesn't. He goes and he's on his way back home. And the text tells us the man took Jesus at his word. In spite of the barriers. And what we find is at the heart of this, Jesus is being asked to heal his son across racial, tribal, and territorial lines. Second, there's a new understanding of God in this story. In most religions, there is a temple or a place of worship. And a lot of times there's an association with God's presence being in that place but not necessarily this place, right? Some of you who might have grown up in church might have heard this, don't run in God's house, right? As if this is where God dwells. Come on, don't act up. Don't misbehave. Now, the geography of God is seen in a different light here because... Jesus says, go on your way, your son will live. Well, I came to you because in, here in this place, there is an understanding of God, the God of the Israelites is, is in this particular territory and you seem to be the point man for that. And so we read in the Old Testament that there's a tabernacle, and there's a temple, and there's the holy place, and there is the holy of holies, and it seems as though that God is kind of confined in space and in time. But somehow, this Gentile official grasped a reality that maybe God can do a work without Jesus coming back to my place. We're not sure if the father hung his head after Jesus said, go on, your son will live. I would. We don't know if he was angry. I would be. We don't know if the father is brushing off Jesus as another imposter who promises certain things but doesn't deliver. It's often difficult for religious people to embrace this understanding of an unbound God. A God who can be there as well as here. Oh, we give acknowledgement to it in our theological language. We say things like God is omnipresent, present everywhere all the time. But we don't live like it at times, though. But here we see in this encounter, Jesus is expanding our thinking. God is not bound in a temple. God is not bound in the Holy of Holies. And God is where we need him to be. And he is telling this soldier, this royal official, your son's going to live. It's okay. Trust me. He takes him at his word and he heads home. You know, God is already where you need him to be. 
Right now, you might have concerns about a family member, son, daughter, mother, father, friend. And you're praying that God will do something. God's already there. If you think of people you're concerned for, even that you have never met halfway around the world, God is already there. And when we enter in that, into that acknowledgement, when we ponder and pray and long for the best for those individuals, life is calling us into life and love is calling us into love. And wherever there is a concern, a fear, or a need, we do not need to conjure up the presence of God to come to that place. He's already there. Remember the Apostle Paul tells us that in God we live and move and have our being. So it doesn't matter whether you're in Willoughby this morning. It doesn't matter if you're someplace else. God's presence is in that place. Wherever you need God, just remember he's already there. Number three, new understanding of faith. A lot of times we like to think of faith in terms of creedal statements or doctrinal beliefs. You don't find that in this conversation. Jesus says, go and your son will live. But first, let me give you a little quiz. Do you believe in only one God and not multiple gods? Do you believe I'm the Jewish Messiah? Do you believe that I have the power to heal your son? Do you believe you have to check all these boxes before I'll do a miracle for you? No. Faith is not necessarily believing in a particular creed, doctrine, dogma. You know what it is? It's trusting the divine presence to be in the moment and into tomorrow. And faith is taking one step of a, at a time on the journey. It's taking one step in front of the other. And I realize the potential is there that we have a way of getting in our own way, right? But this Gentile did not need to become a Jew. He did not need to become a civilian. He did not need to affirm the Jewish law. He had the faith and the courage to walk into an unknown moment and ask God for his mercy and grace. Faith is the courage to put one foot in front of the other and to learn to walk into tomorrow. And faith is what is calling us to understand that to be human is to be a part of who and what God is and in that mystical connection find a better understanding of how God interacts with the world he has created. And when we step into tomorrow with faith, that God will meet us there. These signs in the Gospel of John provide an opening to faith. And there are times in life when we will feel that God has brushed us off. There will be times we will ask the question, where is God? But in the geography of God, God is here. God is present and God is in this moment. The nobleman gives us a picture of what faith looks like, moment by moment, step by step. Yes, it involves pleading. Yes, it involves patience. Yes, it involves persistence. But maybe, maybe what we thought we had 
Sometimes we think we have a strong faith, but maybe what we really have is just a safe faith. And there's a difference. What if God wants to let us walk on our own and trust Him into tomorrow? What if He tells us at times to take a step and we don't know whether He's walking with us well, I thought of an illustration. Those of you who have kids or grandkids, you know that moment when that child gets old enough that they want to walk, but they're afraid to. When they want to step out, but they can't. What is it that enables them to take their first steps? Well, at times, parents and grandparents will be just like this mom who's holding the child up. That child is, really is walking on his own. Doesn't really need the hands anymore, but that's kind of an assurance. That's kind of a safety. And then all of a sudden, that parent slowly takes their finger out of the hand. Well, they might put something else like that binky in his mouth in his hand and a kid will initially think maybe that binky is what's holding them up. But in reality, that child's learning to walk, right? And sometimes that's the way life is. We want the assurance, hold my hand, God. And God is saying, just take a step into the moment. Take a step into tomorrow. You're going to be okay but sometimes we get in our own way, don't we? Do you remember kids when they were walking and then they look and go, nobody's holding me. Down they go, right? <laughs> Come on, get back up, get back up. And you do it again. And pretty soon they get confidence. And they take another step. And then they take another step. This is what life often looks like. Learning to walk, learning to trust, one step at a time, moment by moment, and often life is trying to get out of our own way, right? <laughs> and let God show us that He's already there and show us that He is good. We won't understand everything. There will be times that things won't turn out, maybe like we are hoping, and it is easy in this life to doubt God and to question whether God is even present. But part of the journey of faith is to continue to be thirsty, as Brennan Manning said. And many days, that means just putting one foot in front of the other and stepping into tomorrow while we listen to the echo of Jesus that says, your son will live. You can do it. You can do it. Let go of my hand and trust in my promise. So how does this story end? So the man gets closer to home and what we find is that when he gets home, the servants come out to meet him with the news that his boy's okay. That his boy is going to live. And then the man had 
the perception to ask this question, what time, what time did he get better? And the servants say, yesterday at one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. And then the father realized, oh my goodness, God was here the whole time. God was working, but the exact time that this royal official understood that God was involved at that time when God said, your son will live through Jesus. Then the last line, huh, this is the second sign. John kind of just concludes this story. This is the second sign. So when we step into tomorrow, do we believe that God is good? I'm going to have Charity come up. And uh, how many of you remember a little chorus, God is so good, God is so good, God is so good to me? Well, I didn't put out all the words on this, but I, I want you, you'll catch on. There's a lot of uh, repetition in it. So we're going to sing... This chorus four times, God is so good. He cares for me. I love him so. I praise his name. Stand as we close together.